probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome to The Thing Minute Podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from harperwharris.com, and joining me this week is... My name is Ryan Helped, and you can find more about me at ryanhelped.com. Awesome. So uh, Ryan is actually on uh, one of my favorite podcasts, one of the podcasts I've been listening to for a very, very long time, uh, Science Sort Of, uh, which you guys... How long have you guys been doing that now? We have been doing it uh, next month will be eight years. So we started wow. in 2009. Yeah, that's awesome. That was, it was certainly one of the first podcasts I started listening to. And, um, you know, started at this podcast. I've heard you on uh, on Star Wars Minute, too. So I thought it might be fun to have you on a Movies by Minute about a movie that is ostensibly about some scientists in in some way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And I got to do Jurassic Park Minute, too, which was oh, a lot that's of fun. awesome. Yeah, that, that was that's a good one for you to be on for sure. Definitely. I could have, yeah, I could have said a lot more than I, I ended up even getting the chance to say on that one. <laughs> a lot of meat on the bone. Well, let's uh, let's dig right into this one. So uh, we're talking about minute 41 today, which begins with the uh, last couple seconds of the the big uh, reveal of the ice grave out near the UFO, and then ends a minute later with Gary questioning McCready about, uh, about what's going on. We do get that brief couple seconds of the uh, out on the ice, the the grave. Is there anything uh, since since you get a chance to actually talk about that scene for a second? Is there anything that you kind of noticed about uh, about that scene, or, or have anything to say about the UFO grave site? I mean, I really like the design of the UFO. I did. I did. I'll, I'll admit that I cheated and went back to minute forty and watched that just How to get a, the view <laughs> of the UFO. Because the the first time I saw this movie, that was one of my favorite parts of it. Was I'm sure it's a combination of I don't know if you talk about, it, but it looks like a combination of matte paintings and things like that. Mm. But I just think the design of the UFO is really cool. It looks like an actual piece of broken technology. It doesn't look like just a made up, you know, prop or whatever. Yeah. So I like that a lot. And then I, I guess I never really understood why they had the whole ice grave thing like why would i mean if you crash landed in a place that seemed clearly inhospitable is your first move climb out of your craft and go crawling around yeah there's um there's definitely some stuff to talk about here with that where there's some maybe not maybe not plot holes but you know discussion points as to why it did what it did because yeah my my question really is like you know, there's this whole thing in the movie with how it can, at least when it's kind of capturing somebody or or when it's threatened, it turns into all kinds of different alien things that presumably it's already imitated on other worlds. Mm-hmm. So has it never been to a cold planet before? <laughs> like, could it not imitate something that would survive a little longer in the ice rather than only making it like 50 yards from a, from its spaceship, you know? <laughs> right. Maybe, maybe it was addled from the crash, you know, kind of out of sorts, stumbling around, that sort of thing. But yeah, that that always struck me of, of... It's always weird to me when supposedly superior aliens do things on alien planets that I myself would know not to do. <laughs> Yeah, that's like, a good point. So clearly a bad idea. You know, it's it's the joke from Signs, right? They don't wear spacesuits, so then they can get hit with water. Right. So like, <laughs> I feel like I want aliens to be 
smarter than me <laughs> when I see them in film. <laughs> yeah. But then, but then maybe, you know, again, there's, I know there was a prequel and intended sequels. I could see building a mythology. Like maybe this was uh, what's Vin Diesel's character from pitch black. Oh uh, yeah. Riddick. Riddick. Yeah. Yes. So maybe it's like a Riddick situation. Maybe the, maybe the creature, the thing was the prisoner and that's why it took any opportunity it could to escape and was just going for it and got out in the crash. That's a good point. Yeah, we've talked about earlier uh, in the podcast, we've talked about the possibility of whether the thing was actually the pilot or whether the thing was like a stowaway or yeah. or, or even, you know, kind of a Prometheus thing. Like maybe it was a weapon that these the, the people flying the spacecraft were. were oh, so carrying. like a stowaway. So maybe the thing is the reason the ship crashed. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. OK, that's interesting. Also, on previous podcasts, you question whether there are polar bears in Antarctica. There are not. <laughs> yes, I, I know that now. <laughs> I, I didn't <laughs> there think are definitively so. Definitively, no polar bears in Antarctica. <laughs> I didn't think so. But Arctic, Arctic is actually from the Greek word for bear. So ah, the, I didn't know that. It was called the Arctic because it was the land of the bear. And then Antarctica is the opposite of the Arctic on the other side of the so, world. So it literally means the land of no bears. <laughs> it doesn't actually, it would just mean the opposite side from the side okay, okay. with the bears. So <laughs> it wasn't actually a reference to the lack of bears. It was more the directionality of the, the poles. But it is kind of a fun linguistic quirk that it also kind of means the land of no bears. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so like the, gris, the, the brown bears species is Ursus arctos. Ah, Ursus uh, is Latin for bear, and then Greek is also, or Arctos is Greek for bear. So it's bear, bear in two different languages. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting to think about whether, uh, you know, if this took place somewhere else, if the, the thing might have taken over a different animal. I, I think a thing bear would have probably fared a lot less well trying to fit in at the camp than a, than a dog. <laughs> the Norwegians would have been able to shoot it successfully. Yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> it's a much bigger target. So um, as we're kind of talking about our theories on the thing, um, let's move on in the scene to this is kind of the first time when everybody at the camp at Outpost 31 is trying to kind of understand it. And so we get this night shot of the camp and then we, we cut inside where they're kind of already in the middle of this conversation, which I, I kind of love because it starts immediately with uh, McCready just saying, I don't know, like, like they've been talking about this for hours and they've been questioning him. And I, I, I always think it's kind of funny. By this point in the movie, it's been made very, very clear that McCready is the protagonist and that he's the one in the story that the characters are really looking to for for answers, which is kind of funny when you think of it kind of from an outside perspective that the helicopter pilot. He's the helicopter pilot. pilot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, not, he's not the go-to. Right, and especially considering that uh, probably half the people on this uh, at the camp are scientists in some way or another, but they're not really questioning them. They're really... Well, I guess. They sort of question Blair, but Blair's not willing to talk. I do have one comment before we enter the conversation. Yeah. And it's the establishing shot of the base. And mm -hmm. it's one of my biggest, I think this is my only chance to make this pet peeve. And it's one of my <laughs> biggest pet peeves of the movie is that the movie starts off winter 1982 and then cuts to Antarctica in full daylight. Mm -hmm. And then as the movie progresses, it gets darker and darker. And so we're seeing here a, a late dusk, a little bit of light on the horizon, but almost completely dark. And that's not how winter works when you're in Antarctica. It's just dark. <laughs> Like there's no sun. It's <laughs> that's it. Like if you're inside, you know, the Antarctic Circle or the Arctic Circle, winter time means zero light for for all those months until the sun comes back up. Yeah, we've talked about this a little bit on, on some earlier episodes, and it's definitely not it's definitely not accurate. But the only thing that I guess 
can kind of play into the way it looks a little bit is that at some point they do say, um, McCready says it's the first week of winter. So maybe is right, that, I don't know yeah. if maybe if it's at the very beginning, maybe there's some sunlight just, to, you know, for only a couple hours a day. Or right. Something. But at the, at the very beginning, yeah, you would, you still wouldn't have any part of the day being full daylight yeah, like it is yeah. when, uh, when they're chasing. And I get it from a storytelling perspective because as the darkness encroaches, so does the looming threat of the thing like that. I buy that from a storytelling perspective. Mm-hmm. I just want the listeners to know that while it looks cool on film, completely inaccurate. <laughs> yeah, don't plan your trip to Antarctica and thinking thinking you're going to get some daylight. They don't <laughs> generally let tourists down in Antarctica <laughs> over the winter. It's like it's dangerous enough to get there during the summer when there is daylight. I actually have friends who who have worked in Antarctica for a number of years, and so I have some conversations with them about actual life down there. And it's yeah. it's yeah, it's it's a I mean it's a risky place to get to even when there's full daylight and you can see everything that's going on. So yeah, yeah, we we talked about that. The you know, I think once a certain part of the year sets in, they they there's just absolutely no in and out travel period for for like six months, just because yeah, it's way there's too a really dangerous. great documentary called A Year on the Ice because that's what the so the people who work in Antarctica call it the ice, um, so that you know they say I'm going down to the ice mm-hmm. for my my stint or whatever, and this guy who has done several winterings over in McMurdo Station, so McMurdo Station's our main station, yeah, and it's rare for and, you know, I think people say you go like once, once for the experience, twice for glory and three times you're crazy. <laughs> so, and he's wintered down there a couple of times. And so he's part of the crew that actually stays there over the six months. And he films a documentary during those six months of complete darkness where it's just them cut off from the world. And it's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, that sounds cool. Uh, yeah, I think it's on Netflix. Yeah, I'll, have to, I'll see if I can find a, a, a link to that and post it. In yeah, the you can at least yeah, at least post the trailer. Yeah, that'd be cool. Um yeah, I do. The only thing I'll, I'll say about the the nighttime thing is I've always found it kind of strange that, you know, that's obviously I think that's a thing that the general public at least knows a little bit about that you know it that down there it's dark you know for a, a huge chunk of the year it's dark all the time and that kind of thing it's that's not like completely out of public knowledge, but it's odd to me that they don't they don't actually kind of play that into the story a little bit more that the characters don't really talk about it. Cause it seems like an obvious, that seems like almost one of the reasons you'd want to base a movie in Antarctica because you could, uh, you know, kind of like a 30 days of night kind of thing, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what I was going to say. You could really play that into the story and they really don't. It's, it's kind of subtly in there, but you know, that nobody ever talks about it. But yeah, so we, we move into these guys uh, really kind of trying to understand what's going on and, um, and throwing some conspiracy theories around. So, um, yeah, I really like uh, Matt kind of this. This is really him like kind of uh, not wanting to take charge, I guess. Like they're all questioning him and him and his responses are all just like, like I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I kind of love he that also, line. He looks so much like he looked in the recent Guardians movie with the, the long <laughs> hair and the beard that I was just laughing to myself, especially in the 1980s scene at the beginning of the movie when he's supposed to be this, this age. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It is. That's it, kind of fun. It's definitely a nice throwback. <laughs> I can't figure out why Childs is so skeptical. Yeah, I don't know. He's um he's he's supposed to be a mechanic, which I'll, although the movie doesn't really tell you that at all. But yeah, there's no real part of his personality that that explains why he's he's easily the biggest skeptic at the in the camp and I'm not sure why that is necessarily. Yeah, it seems he just seems very like set on this whole nobody believes this do they and it's like we've all seen it happen there's evidence like there's pieces of metal from the craft we got that weird dog like what 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 is not clicking here for you (laughs) yeah and well and that actually goes into um it's 
there's a lot of stuff in the script around this part of the movie that's really kind of rearranged. And I think this might be earlier in the movie. Well, I mean, I guess they've seen the UFO at this point. So it doesn't really, you know, I guess there isn't really an excuse. <laughs> there's definitely some some rearranging, but still. They, and they did, they brought, they brought, you know, scraps of metal back from it and they laid it out in the classic, like, crashed. I almost feel like ever since Roswell and the guy's holding up, you know, what looks like a piece of aluminum foil mm-hmm. as if it's like this great discovery. <laughs> I feel like that's a trope in UFO stories now is that you have to bring back a few bits of metal and then arrange them on a table. And then somebody <laughs> has to say something like, it's not from this world as if like there are metals we don't know about. Right. <laughs> Which, you know, the periodic table's pretty well fleshed out. I think we got most of them. At least they don't, we don't have like a whole conversation about like, you know, space age alloys or polymers or something here trying to kind of, you know, nonsense talk their way out of it. <laughs> right. I mean, well, speaking of nonsense, they do bring up Chariot of the Gods. Yes. So that I, I definitely wanted to talk about that. That's a very, um, speaking of Ooh, science, boy. sort of. <laughs> I don't know if that's even sort of. <laughs> yeah, really. I think Chariot of the Gods might be one of those things that it's so wrong, it's not even wrong. <laughs> like it's just it's almost it's unfair to the concept of wrong to call it wrong <laughs> so uh for the listeners who aren't, aren't familiar um so palmer brings up chariots of the gods when he's talking to uh to childs and trying to convince him and, and palmer's obviously the like conspiracy theorist at the camp chariots of the gods was a book written by eric von daniken in 1968 it's about this grand theory that ancient civilizations were given technology and religion by ancient astronauts that they thought were gods Right. So it was a white German guy writing about how brown people weren't good enough to build pyramids. Right. (laughs) If we're going to really put it in its most blunt terms possible, this German dude didn't think that native peoples were good enough to figure out how to stack rocks. Yeah. So uh, not something I invest a lot of (laughs) a lot of truth (laughs) in. Also, like, okay, here's another I I don't mean for my first minute to be like pet peeve minute because I I do really, really enjoy this movie. But it's been a pet peeve of mine lately when he talks about how, like, they practically own South America. And I get real tired of, like, Mexico being lumped in with South America. Like, it's clearly (laughs) North America. And if you're talking about, like, Aztecs and Mayans, like, it's, you know, I know he only mentions the Incans, which are legitimately south american but you know he he does he does go north of the southern hemisphere <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it sounds like chariots of the gods covers all all over uh, and but definitely yeah a lot of a lot of uh stuff except in mexico. where white people built stuff well yeah obviously i mean of course <laughs> <laughs> other than other than those places i guess he does include stonehenge all right so I'll, I'll retract that slightly. <laughs> so pagans, if you include pagans, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you if you take the yeah if you take the religion out of it, then the white the white guys are you know then it's okay. Have you seen you know he he also mentions like the the big head statues on Easter Island. Have you seen the way that they actually think that the people got those into place? No, I, no, I'm very curious. <laughs> it's really really cool. They have um, basically three ropes attached to the the thing so if you actually excavate one of those big easter island heads they've got tiny little bodies underground oh wow so they've got like two arms and two legs but they're short and stubby you know not even maybe like a fourth the the size of the actual head yeah and what they would do or at least what we've recreated as a plausible way to move these things around is they actually walked them around the island so they would attach three ropes they would attach a stabilizing rope off the uh the front and then they would attach two ropes off to the side and they one side would pull and it would tilt up on like the right side. And then the left side would like pull and it would rock back and forth. And then you'd have this third rope pulling it in the direction they wanted it to go. And so they would actually like waddle it 
around the island. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> so then you could say that uh, maybe some futurist uh, people who moved furniture went back in time and, and showed them how to do that. That's the new. I mean, theory. I'm still <laughs> I'm still amazed by like when whenever you know we buy a piece of furniture and and it's not like IKEA where I have to put it together myself and so you know like a couch that somebody actually comes mm-hmm. and delivers and they're in and out in like ten minutes. I'm like, this would be an all day you know, friends sitcom episode. If I tried to do this <laughs> ancient aliens, man, they, they taught us how to move that furniture around. I mean, I, I don't guess, know how I mean, else could we have figured it out? I don't know. I would have appreciated if these ancient aliens also warned us that there were shape shifting monsters that we needed to watch out for that had, were already here. Like that's the other thing. <laughs> yeah, that's <is> true. <laughs> this, this craft has been there for theoretically a hundred thousand years. Although I, okay. So I don't do any like cryosphere work. So I actually don't know how you would uh, date the ice with, but with just a visual inspection like this. That's <laughs> yeah. Completely... After like two seconds of looking at it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe if you had a mass spec and could look at like the carbon dioxide, dioxide bubbles trapped in the, the ice, which mm-hmm. Is something we actually do with ice cores to, to determine what the atmospheric composition was in the past, yeah. which is kind of a cool thing. But if the aliens were here helping us build pyramids, why weren't they also like scanning for other crash ships and saving us from horrible monsters? <laughs> yeah, that does South really play aliens. in. Uh, <laughs> doesn't really doesn't really work in this movie. But are we supposed to take this? I guess the question. My question is: Are we supposed to take this guy's suggestion of *Chariot of the Gods* seriously in this scene? Like, is he? onto something or are we supposed to still be dismissing him as a crackpot like Childs is? That's kind of funny because I always I never really thought about it but I guess I always just assumed you're supposed to think of him as a crackpot because he's obviously like the pothead and and earlier in the movie they um you know he when he offers to fly them out to the Norwegian camp and they're like forget it like like no way they all kind of treat him as a goofball. But he is correct like yeah, there exactly. are aliens on earth. <laughs> yeah that's that's not these aliens, not those aliens. Book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is kind of funny. It's it's kind of like you know if this happened in real life, how how vindicated would would uh, would a lot of conspiracy theorists who had theories about aliens that were wrong, but they were right about aliens? You know how would that that would be kind of an interesting scenario? <laughs> well, I feel like most scientists I talk to these days are perfectly willing to admit that alien life is probably out there, even within our own galaxy. Maybe within our own solar system, if you consider the deep past, mm-hmm. places like Mars, and maybe even in the present on places like Titan and Europa. But I think very few scientists take seriously the possibility that there is intelligent aliens out there that are making active transport visits to right. Earth. Right. Yeah. I mean that that's a that's a real stretch in in any um, in any circumstance. Like the possibility. I mean, the universe is so big and so old that you know it's hard to rule out the possibility that life has been around or is around somewhere, but the fact that they've made their way here and, and there happens to be no evidence of it or no, you know, no, nothing to really show for that is pretty, yeah, the, pretty the unlikely. Dist- I mean, distances on a galactic scale are nothing to shrug at. When right. It- yeah. I've been, uh, I've, I've, in addition to doing this podcast, I've been reading contact. So I've got a lot of, uh, a lot of brain power spent on, uh, intelligent life in, in the in <laughs> outer be space. An awful big waste of space. Yeah. <laughs> It's actually interesting that um, Palmer talks about Danikin in the script. He mentions it a lot more specifically. So I, this was Chariots of the Gods is not something I was familiar with. Certainly not the first time I saw this movie, and not not until pretty recently, I guess. Uh, okay. See, I see. I, when I was growing up, um, I was big into Aliens and Bigfoot and Loch Ness monster and all that stuff. I kind of lump it all together, and so I was very very aware of Chariots of the Gods when they mentioned it, and uh, 
don't, you know, I, I have very different views and feelings on it now, as I think I've made pretty abundantly clear. <laughs> but uh, I definitely had the context when it when it came up because, you know, I grew up I grew up in West Virginia and there's actually like a lot of weird UFO mythology and lore in West Virginia, like yeah. the Mothman and some of the original Men in Black reports come from West Virginia and Braxton County Monster and all these other uh, supposed alien encounters over the years. So I, I got deep into it as a as a youngling. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that this minute has one of my favorite lines in the movie, which is uh, which is Child's uh, voodoo bullshit, which he says twice. not once, but twice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and Keith David. He's so awesome. I love Keith David. I think this is the only scene I get with him. So I just want to go ahead and just give big old thumbs up to Keith David in general. He is pretty damn awesome. He's he's such a great counterpoint character to McCready in this movie in that they're both kind of like stubborn assholes in, in a lot of ways, but in very they have very different personalities where Childs is, is kind of very involved and, and in it and McCready is like, I don't want to be a part of this, like I just want to go to my shack and get drunk. <laughs> right. And it also, you know, it's it's fun that they're already setting up like this really dynamic juxtaposition between the two because mm-hmm. if this was the first time you saw the movie, you wouldn't realize I assume are we doing this with the assumption that we've seen the whole movie? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Then you wouldn't you wouldn't even know that we're setting them up to be the last two in opposition to each other. Yeah. And so it's cool that they're they're setting up that dynamic early. Yeah. And their 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 views are not totally opposite because it's McCready obviously knows that something's going on. And I guess you could say he's he's not like the most hardcore believer in it at this point. Morton, unlike, you know, Palmer is and, and Blair obviously is, although he doesn't talk about it here. But he's he's clearly the one who's kind of explaining it to them, so it puts him in a position very opposite of Childs in that sense. I did want to note I've been I've been going through uh, recently, and for some of the parts of the movie, the TV version of the movie has some pretty uh, pretty interesting stuff going on compared to what's in the real deal. It's obviously edited like crazy, and I thought it was funny to note that in this in this moment, my favorite line "Voodoo bullshit" has changed to "Voodoo bull stuff." Uh, so Keith David had to go in and record that line and, and probably felt pretty ridiculous. And it's, it's sad that people on TV didn't get my, my favorite line of the movie watching it growing up that way. <laughs> yeah. The only thing I wanted to mention that I had kind of in my notes about this minute is that this is one of the very few scenes in the movie that has, um, with the exception of Knowles, who comes in just a few seconds uh, in the next minute, this has every single character in the movie in it, in one, actually in one shot when they do this kind of dolly shot that turns around in the rec room, which is it's pretty neat. You don't really get that a lot. And John Carpenter has talked about in, um, in commentaries and stuff that it's these scenes where it's just everybody talking that he was the most worried we're not going to play out because it's it's just he's worried that it was just a bunch of talking heads and that it would be really difficult to make it you know suspenseful or exciting or visually interesting Mm. but i think he does a really good job there's a lot of camera movement in this scene um it's not just like cuts to close-ups of faces although we get a, a few of those but there's a lot of like you know we move from uh from the whiskey up to McCready's face that we have that camera move that goes down to look at Palmer. Uh, there's some real sharp angles looking over Blair's shoulder and everything. And, and then we get that long dolly shot at the end. It's really, really nice. So I didn't have a chance to rewatch this entire movie, but even in the five minutes I had, it's interesting how much the camera lingers on the whiskey, knowing how the movie ends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it that is kind of cool. It is a little bit. It plays into that. Uh, you know, obviously, when we get close to the end of the movie, we're going into a, a lot of those kind of fan theories about about how that works, and that's one of the ones that I find more interesting about how the uh, the drink that he offers Childs in the end uh, is a is a major plot point that is is very subtle and a lot of people didn't catch, but 
fans. fans I, I definitely didn't catch deal. it my first time through the movie. No, I didn't. It, it's something I didn't really think about until pretty recently. But yeah, you're right. They do kind of focus in a lot of scenes. Actually, there's um, there's a lot of focus on the whiskey or uh, even when he hits a fire alarm early in the movie, he hits it with his beer can and a close up. So, yeah, there's the drinks are kind of a focus in some way. So maybe that is John Carpenter's subtle way of of trying to make us pay attention to that. But yeah, I did. Uh, the only thing I know with that dolly movement, I was going to mention that uh, it actually goes behind the wall. Um, it's one of those kind of impossible shots that you don't yeah. really notice. But I think it was maybe in Dean Cundy, the cinematographer, was in his commentary that he he thought, I guess he thought more of uh, more of the audience <laughs> that they would that they would notice it and think it was crazy or impossible. And, and John Carpenter's like, no, I don't think anybody's going to notice. <laughs> <laughs> But it works because it. Uh, I, I like the way that it actually goes behind Blair. We get two shots in this minute from behind Blair's shoulder. And we talked about this a little bit last week, but that this whole sequence is really kind of putting us almost in Blair's perspective in a lot of cases because this is when he's really starting to understand what's happening. And he's the first person, obviously, as we'll see later on in this week, he's the first person to really kind of understand the stakes of what's going on and how, how big this problem is. So it's it's interesting that we get a lot of these kind of silent perspective shots of, of Blair to kind of put us in his position. Yeah, Wilford Brimley does a good job playing a man who's thinking very hard about something. <laughs> Which I think I'm not being facetious. Like, he really does look like a guy who's really deep in thought and really trying to puzzle this out. That's true, yeah. The, there's, there was one in, in a, uh, a scene a couple minutes ago, and he's just kind of standing in the background silently, and then we get this scene where he doesn't say anything. And, yeah, there's a lot of him just kind of quietly worrying and and mm-hmm. trying to you know parse out what what's going to happen and what he needs to do so yep. definitely plays into what what happens with him later on so well i think that was everything i had for minute 41 is there anything you wanted to mention nope that was uh covered my notes and then some sweet so i think that'll wrap us up for this minute but in the meantime uh listeners you can always go to the com for full show notes on uh every episode which includes links to things we talked about and if I can find any, I usually post some behind-the-scenes pictures and, and stuff like that, too. So it's always kind of worth uh, checking out. But in the meantime, just make sure you come back tomorrow for another episode of The Thing Minute. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thethingminute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com, and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper, signing out.